PFT Media. You are now listening to Cinema Crespediso. What is up, ladies and gentlemen? How you doing? It is Chris Crespo. I'm in the Crespediso studio, and it's time for another patreon.com slash Crespediso re-release presented by Manscaped. Um, if you uh, checked out last week's re-release episode of Strange Days, you know that Manscaped has teamed up with Cinema Crespediso to uh, re-release some of these older episodes and also they're going to present next week's best of I think it's next week or maybe it was last week's the uh, the best of February 2023 episode uh, and like I said last week I was going to talk about these uh, products as I use them and let me tell you this beard hedger the beard hedger which is apparently one of their newer products it's uh, their beard trimmer it's thing is fantastic like I said last week uh the packaging on these products, on these uh, precision engineer tools are amazing. It's, I'm very impressed. The Beard Hedger comes with its own. Listen to this. Here, that, that is me opening this very solid, very cool little uh, uh, case that holds the trimmer itself along with room for uh, the charger to plug it in. It also, you can use a they have a wireless stand you can plug this bad boy into it looks very cool but this thing you hear that this thing is solid it's uh, it's heavy it's got weight to it it's got nice little nice grip on it the uh the adjustments the uh the different lengths incredible 20 different lengths on here like by the half centimeter or whatever i don't even know what it is but it, this thing is uh, a real precision tool and it's fantastic. It's got a 60 minute runtime on its battery. The LED, it's got like a LED charge indicator. And it's like this three light thing, one, two, three. It's perfect for the Blade Runner episode, but it's very, very cool looking, very, very sleek, sci-fi cool looking. Uh, I mean, this thing is great. This thing is great. It goes, fits in this cool travel bag very well. And uh, I, I highly recommend the Beer Hedger. Look it up, the Beer Hedger. And if you want to get it from manscaped.com, all you gotta do is go to the promo code area type in crespo c-r-e-s-p-o you'll get 20 percent off plus free shipping and that is worldwide you hear me my listeners in britain big ups to our fans in wolverhampton we know you're still listening uh the beer hedger is awesome they also they've sent me a, a whole package full of great things and uh, uh it's all fantastic i talked about the 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 package last week with the ear and nose trimmer that thing is great the uh the groin and body uh lawnmower 4.0 that thing's fantastic the ball deodorant the crop reviver they have fantastic products they're all very well made i'm very impressed manscape.com uh, again promo code crespo get the 20 percent off plus uh worldwide free shipping did you hear that sound in the background that means it's time to get the episode started uh, this is a re-release of Blade Runner, but not just talking about the plot of the movie, but actual, a full deep dive on the making of the movie. There's a book called Future Noir that is a very in-depth, very detailed telling of the entire production, pre-production, production, everything about the movie, post-production, the afterlife of it, the legacy of it. It goes all the way up. This book goes all the way up to the making of the uh, by the time they wrote and published the book, Blade Runner 2049 was just going into pre-production. So it's full of info. I read the whole thing. I devoured it. It's such a great book. And then I'm bringing you the Crest Notes in this hour-long Crest Film School bonus episode. Uh, previously only available on Patreon.com slash And also in a limited live run on WGO team in Gainesville. So Gainesville uh, local radio listeners got to hear this episode. Uh, so this is an exclusive. This was very exclusive. It had very it had a very weird run history, just like the movie itself, Blade Runner. So now here is the the full director's cut re-release. Uh, hope you enjoy. Again, Manscaped.com. Thank you for sponsoring this episode, this re-release. Patreon.com slash so you can sign up today to get full access to everything. Uh, One to five dollars a month gets you access to every episode we've done on the Patreon. And there we go. Enjoy Blade Runner Film School. Thank you, Manscaped.
Vangelis. It's good. You ever you ever sit down and just listen to some Vangelis? Every once in a while. Do you? Yeah. You know, uh, meditate to it. LP from Run the Jewels. He does all the beats for Run the Jewels. Yeah. Uh, for Run the Jewels 2, he actually bought the synthesizer that Vangelis used to score Blade Runner. Very cool. LP owns it, and he used it on Run the Jewels 2 and Run the Jewels 3. Very cool. So the Blade Runner connection the, the, to the to RTJ. Yes. The RTJ, Blade <laughs> Run to the Jewels. <laughs> through through Vangelis. Through, look at that. Yes. Juice of Cobra, and that's why, people, you're paying the extra dose for it. I know. Because we're, we're dropping that kind of knowledge. That's awesome. <laughs> that's really cool. That's very yeah. cool. Yeah, Van, Van, pronounced Vangelis. Exactly. Thanks to this book that I'm reading. Just found this out like two weeks yeah, ago. I told you. I was like, my mind was blown. Can I blow your mind? How old were you when you found out it was pronounced Vangelis? Uh, I was this day I was old. 36. I was today days old. <laughs> I was 36 when I learned. Uh, yes. Uh, I'll, I'll give that a second. Gotta do a roll call real quick. What up, patrons? You guys are awesome. Uh, who are these people again? What are names? Oh, yeah. We got Peter the First, Gabe the Great, Scott the Spot, uh, Carmella Show, Cranwood India, Ronda Wonderful. That's our canonical five. The first five to sign up in that order. And then, of course, we got uh, the First Lady, Maggie. What's up, Maggie? Wielding that sword. And then we got uh, our seventh person to sign up was my mother. Uh, Mom, if you're listening to this, text me uh, Blade Runner. Let's see. Let's see if this happens. Never going to happen. Um, Sorby Jones signed up as well as Trey from the Sorby Jones Show and Cooking Up Comedy. Those people are awesome. Aaron Mullen? What's up? Walt. Walter White? Wilson. Walt Wilson. <laughs> I think it's a mixture of Walt White and Wade Wilson. What's up, Breaking Badish? Walter. It's like, uh, what is it? Wilson Fisk. Deadpool. Walter Wilson Fisk. <laughs> Deadpool. Slade. Wade, Wade Wilson. Wade Wilson. Walt Wade Wilson Slade. Welcome to the anyway. show. So we're talking Blade Runner. <coughs> I read this book called. Chris read a book. Oh my God, he's literate. Oh my God. I love reading. I just found out today, today, today I learned Chris is literate. I love reading. I'm very conflicted as to what my next book is going to be. Uh, Because I have options. This one. Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner, Paul M. Salmon, S-A-M-M-O-N. Uh, so what I'm going to be doing is, you know, for the most part... Just reading from the book. I'm going to read from the book. <laughs> so here we go. Right, so you know how those pages start with Page the Roman one. name? No, actually, the Roman numerals. That n- numerals. Ro- the Roman, the the Roman, Roman numerals? You know how the Roman numerals <laughs> go backwards? The Roman numerals. The, the, okay, should I, should I start with page one? Okay, I'll skip, the, I'll skip the numerals, okay? So, and for people at home, Jude, they can't see this. For people at home, this is the markers where I left yes. it at, at the interview section. Uh, this book is... And and Ridley Scott said, "Let there be light," and there was. This book is four. And it was good. The book is four hundred ninety-five pages long, and then there's another hundred pages of interviews right. in the back. That's page one. Uh, yeah, R- page one. Ridley Scott said, "Let there be light." Page one. Ridley Scott said, "Let there be light." Hey, so you've read this before? <laughs> you've read this before Why am I? Bo- I'm sorry, Drew. My, is, I feel so embarrassed. <laughs> my right in the face. Chapter one, the film. Early in the 21st century now. <laughs> so this is a fantastic book. Uh, and it really does go through, like, just in order, the whole thing. Like, the chapter headings will let you know what uh, all the info that's in here. Uh, designing Blade Runner, cast and crew. The shoot the shoot section is the longest section at 130 pages, just going through it yeah. pretty much chronologically. Uh, a whole section that's called Friction on Set. A whole section about the special effects, which I got, like, halfway through it. And I was like, you know, I can skim this part. Because it's, <laughs> it is very technical, technical heavy. Very, very technical heavy. But if you're into that stuff, then yeah. it's, like, a wealth of information. Uh, post-production music, the best part. The sneaks, the sneak peeks, the panic, the post-production, all that nonsense. Yeah. Uh, all that's in here, plus all the stuff that happened afterwards. We're going to go over all, the, like, the bullet points of all that shit. But... I recommend people seriously. It's like well written. Yeah. So this dude, Paul Salmon, what was up with this guy is he was hired for a magazine, Cinema Fantastique. Okay. And they wanted, they just wanted to embed a journalist on the Blade Runner set because see what happened. it already had a bunch yeah. of buzz going into it. So like we want someone there to chronicle the whole thing, uh, write some articles along the way. And then when the movie comes out, we'll put out a like big issue that's just devoted to Blade, Blade Runner. Runner. And yeah. you can write the whole thing. So he spent two years on a set researching, talking to people, doing interviews, all this stuff. And then when the movie came out, he filed the article with the magazine and he thought, like, this is it. I'm done. Blade Runner. It was a nice part of my life. I enjoyed it. But now I'm moving on. And apparently, nope, wasn't the way to be. He ended up continuing to research it, 
as the movie like it evolved and things kept happening and things kept changing and he uh, ended up doing this whole giant compendium of the history of Blade Runner yeah that came out in 1997 okay the first edition second edition came out in the UK I believe in hardcover with a few additions and a couple corrections in like 2007 and then this came out a couple years ago very recently uh, recent enough that there's a tiny section in the back one of Same. the last chapters on Same. Blade Runner 2049 there's some dude making 20, Blade Runner 2049 a decent amount actually it's, oh, okay. it's uh it's very funny what they say in here. I, I actually haven't. I, I could read the whole thing and I can. It's only 12 pages. And on the second day, Alphonse Cuaron said, Let there be a light. Chapter 20 is on Blade <laughs> Runner 2049. And one of the best parts here calls it Blade Runner notoriously difficult shoot for, mm-hmm. for everyone involved. And on this one, they were all like, uh, <laughs> The emergent news was. Gosling was liked by all. <laughs> he and Ford got along famously. Everyone loved director Villanueva, and the cast and crew was composed of many individuals for whom the original Blade Runner was a beloved object. Special praise on the production side was given to Villanueva, producer Cynthia Sykes-Yorkin, and Alkin Entertainment. Everyone just got along swimmingly. Yeah. It was it, it went great for everyone. Ching! Everyone was super, super happy about it. So, uh, yeah, people read the book for the full fold for real story but we are going to do the the Crespo Diesel film school version of Blade Runner so you ready for this Drew? Mm. alright so seriously in the beginning there was nothing right there was just uh, energy was compressed into this tiny ball all matter all energy was everything the singularity tiny little thing singularity under its own weight and pressure it finally exploded sending matter and energy throughout in all directions Mm -hmm. uh, starting the Big Bang uh, evolution right smash cut Mm 2 1968. America. Philip K. Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Releases uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is about a bureaucratic uh, dude working in a it's a future San Francisco where uh, nature is like obliterated. Everything is um, synthetic. Mm-hmm. Animals are, are mostly fake. And this dude, this Deckard, just wants his final goal. All he wants is a sheep. A real sheep mm-hmm. to call his own. He's just fixated. On, I just want to make enough money to be able to buy my own animal and, and keep it and maintain it. And I want a sheep. And uh, and then there's this whole other thing in there about you know like androids and stuff like that. And some of the character names are the same, but overall the story is pretty pretty different. Characters pretty different. It's yeah. not it's not like a film noir type mm-hmm. thing like the movie ended up being. And uh, this dude Hampton Fancher was an actor and you know writer producer wanted to be a producer wanted to be a director so he got the rights to the book and this is already after a few people had given it a go and had their uh pay for the rights and try to get it also philip k dick was always very distrusting of uh hollywood types so people would like write their versions send him the script and then they'd show it to his place to uh like get notes and he'd be like this is, this is garbage <laughs> what's wrong with you? this is absolute shit you you, you get out get out of my office um Hampton Fancher gave it a shot, and he gave it a pass. And him and Philip K. Dick actually got along pretty well. Uh, he was like, you know, he kind of get where I'm going at. They both, a lot of the early drafts of the of Blade Runner, which at that time was called, like, Dangerous Days. That had several titles. One of, of course. Was, one of the longest ones. Do. They always do. Dangerous Days stuck the longest. Uh, there's even a documentary that's, like, an hour long called Dangerous Days. That's how prominent it was for a while, that title. Uh, what do you think of that title? Dangerous, I mean, dangerous days. Sure, it does. I Why mean, not? It doesn't have the same cachet now with the whole no, decades it of history. But, but I mean, at, at the same time, I'm, I mean, I'm sure. I mean, they only they don't even say Blade Runner, but was like once in the fucking movie. They, and they uh, really don't. Yeah, they, they, they really don't tell you much about they, anything yeah, about it. They, oh, why it's called Blade why Runner? It's called Blade Runner. It's like such a badass name, but it doesn't, really doesn't make any fucking what, sense. What does it even mean? <laughs> he said you Blade Runner. Well, exactly. Tell yeah. him I'm eating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And it's like I need. He says I need a. I need my old runner. I think he says. I don't even call him Blade Runner. He says I need an old runner. I think later uh M. Emmett Walsh mm. we'll talk we'll actually talk about all that Drew I'll, I'm gonna give you all I'm that sure. info you're gonna get it mm. oh you're gonna you're gonna get it um so Hampton Fancher options it writes the initial drafts this is in 1977 so almost 10 years after the the novel comes out Philip K. Dick is also sort of enjoying a bit of a um because he dies in like 82 right before the movie comes out mm-hmm. so he's enjoying late in his career now, relatively speaking, uh, a bit of a resurgence. People are like really appreciating his pulpy stuff for you know smart the way it is written and all that. Mm-hmm. 
Ah, <clears throat> he hooks up with um, Michael Dealey. Michael Dealey is a producer. At this point, he had already produced movies like Don't Look Now, which we've mentioned on Chris Medusa before. A great, uh, you, gotta, you gotta see it, Drew. A great horror film from the 70s. Psychological horror with uh, Donald Sutherland. Okay. It's really good. Um, the Wicker Man, the original yeah. one, obviously. Convoy, which was a big hit. The Driver, which is a really cool movie. Big influence on Drive. And uh, The Deer Hunter. Hmm. He was fresh off of The Deer Hunter. Okay. So Michael Dealey's got some swag going. He's got a little bit of swag. So he gets his hand on the Fancher scripts. He likes it. He agrees to work on it. Uh, goes about raising some money. Hooks up with a company called Filmways. Filmways puts up like they say like we'll give you like eight nine million. Uh, then they went and got Ridley Scott, and Ridley Scott was like, "Oh yeah, the budget is at least fourteen million. And Filmways was like, "Oh yeah, oh, 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 oh boy!" So that was the beginning of the end of that particular relationship. But okay. uh, the reason they even got Ridley Scott right, he had done The Duelist was his first film. Mm-hmm. At, at the age of like forty, at that point, he was a majorly successful uh, director of commercials. Deserve of his own episode, actually. Ridley Scott, is, of course, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. And um, coming off of Alien, he didn't want to do another sci-fi movie. Mm-hmm. But then uh, his older brother died unexpectedly. And he was also working on Dune. He was going to do Dune. Okay. And uh, Ridley Scott's Dune. Right after Jodorowsky and Alien. And then it would have been yeah. Dune. Uh, that would have been... That's another alternate universe, right? Man, you know what? It could have. He could have. Ridley Scott's Dune probably would have been a lot like Jodorowsky's Dune. It could have been, but with because... the sensibility of like uh, the the Blade Runner, the slower pace, you know. He yeah, because kind of I mean, because he was already working with people who were f- very familiar with fucking Dune property. Dune, like, <laughs> they, I mean, technically, they worked on it for how many years and really didn't get paid? <laughs> yeah. So, but for again, for whatever reason, Dune is a wieldy beast. It, yeah. was, it was slow going. And uh, he ended up going back to... And then what happened? He had read a draft of Dangerous Days, whatever it was called at that time. He was like, eh, it's okay. I'm not really into it. Did a rewrite. Came back to him. He was like, oh, this is actually not bad. And uh, talked to Dealey. Threw himself in. So it's a, maybe part of the reason to... Not maybe. Big part of the reason why the movie's so dark and dreary and, and intense and ruminative about impending doom and death because all the things just happened to the sky because his brother died yeah yep i gotta go back and look at this tomorrow what did he make right after tony scott died there's a little bit of research here you gotta look at the year tony scott died and then look at his filmography no i know it's all right you just keep doing your thing you gotta connect a couple of that yeah i can can do that so uh during the pre-production process which the pre-production for the most part went pretty well it wasn't until production started that it became a difficult shoot. But during pre-production, Fancher and Scott worked together a lot on the screenplay, a lot of back and forth. Obviously, that's how that goes. And then at some point, Fancher actually left. He was like, I'm done with this. And uh, oh, what had happened was um, they had hired David Peoples to do his own draft of uh, the script with some of really Scott's notes. All right, so Tony Scott died in 2012. Prometheus came out in 2012. So it was already in production. What came out after Prometheus? After Prometheus? Yeah. Because oh, that would be, if he died in 2012, what movie was he in production? We have already been in production on something, too. Yeah. It may not be as, as just as a one-to-one as we were thinking. Armchair psychologist, Juju Cogburn and Chris Crespo striking out anyway. on this one. It's fine. So David Peoples uh, gets... Uh, hired to do a draft and uh, Fancher saw it was like what the fuck is this got all pissed off quit ended up contributing throughout the production anyway kind of a theme mm-hmm. here with this thing so he's not part of the team but it continues David Peoples then uh, becomes the principal screenwriter so if you look at the movie it's credited to both Hampton Fancher and David Peoples David Peoples it's his first like credited screenplay mm-hmm. uh, he was trying to get into uh, he was an editor trying to get into writing and you know everyone Everyone does one thing once they do something, do something else. else. Uh, Blade Runner was his first official job that he got credit for. He went on to, he had, at the same time, he had another screenplay in his pocket. He had already written, trying to get it made, couldn't get it made at the time. He got it made 20 years later, a little movie called Unforgiven. Mm. Pretty significant movie there. With his wife, Janet, he wrote uh, 12 Monkeys. Oh, there we go. And that was the first time. That's how I know David Peoples no. for... Just because my particular age bracket, you know, I, I saw 12 Monkeys before I ever saw Blade Runner. And uh, Soldier. 
the Kurt Russell one. Oh yeah. Uh, Paul Wetshit Anderson's Soldier, in which it uh, technically not technically officially not officially takes place in the Blade Runner universe. Which really? Is, yes, it is. Uh, Interesting. Because Soldiers based on a Philip K. Dick story, mm-hmm. and it's written by David Peoples, who also wrote on Blade Runner. So he wrote in a couple things there, like he wrote that ties it, it in, sort of, kind of, like unofficially. It's just officially. like it's like he knows. Yeah. <laughs> and if you know, then you know. It all takes place in the same world. Okay. Because uh, Soldier, he's a he's a replicant. He's a replicant yeah. soldier. They don't call him replicants. No, that's what he is. No. So anyway, uh, but going back to Hampton Fancher. All right, going back to the title Blade Runner. Where did Blade Runner come from? So you're sitting around, like you know. Dangerous Days, yeah, it's fine, but there's something a little better. Uh, and uh, Scott kind of sends Fancher home on a Friday. He's like, hey, have something by Monday. You got a weekend. Give us something different. Fancher uh, is going through his books or whatever. He's just looking at stuff, looking at his library, and he sees a spine of a book written by William S. Burroughs, and it's called Blade Runner, colon, a movie. <laughs> It's the name of this short book. Okay. It's a William S. Burroughs yeah. book. Uh, and he saw the name. He's like Blade Runner. He's like, oh, that's, a, that's a pretty good name. Mm, pretty awesome name. So he shows up on Monday. And when Ridley Scott's like, so what do you got? Instead of telling him, he writes it down on a piece of paper. And he hands it to him. And he says, uh, it works better if you read it. it. It just works better that way if you read it instead of hearing it. And he hands it to Scott. And Scott's like, yes. I guess this is great. <laughs> I love it. This, it's like edgy. It's violent. Uh, it's mysterious. This is very, very cool. And then as he's like praising it, Fancher's like, God damn it. He's like kind of getting a little like sheepish or embarrassed yeah. or whatever. And Scott's like, what, what's what's up? What's your deal? And he goes, well, you know, the thing is, uh, <laughs> it's not mine. <laughs> it's, a, it's, say a, no. it's a William S. Burroughs novel. Yeah. And Scott was like, we got to have it. We got to have it. That's the reason why this the budget got so, one of the reasons, yeah. an example of why the budget got so big. We got to have it. We got to have it. So then they approach William S. Burroughs who happened to be, like, appreciative of everything anyway, gave it to him for, like, a small fee, like, whatever. You guys can pretty much, yes, you can use the title. Fine, you just want the title. You just it's, want it's the yours. title, it's yours. It's one of my lesser-known, obviously, yeah. works. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that it gets a spike in sales ever since this fucking this movie People came like, out. what is Blade Runner? And then, <laughs> and then they read it, like, this has nothing to do with that. <laughs> exactly. Neither of them help yep. each other <laughs> at all. So, uh, okay, now, film ways. They came in like, we got some monies on it. We'll throw in money. Uh, and then they're like, you know what? Uh, we don't have enough money. <laughs> <laughs> We're out. We actually, yeah, we, we got to be out, guys. We're sorry. We think you're going to do great, but we can't We can't do this with you. Um, so Dealey, the producer, he had to run around for a week, and he uh, secured a three-way deal between Sir Run Run Shaw out in uh, China, who's out there just crushing it with his uh, Shaw Brothers uh, pictures, mm-hmm. um, the lad company that's... Uh, a sub like production company for uh, Warner Brothers, okay. so that's how Warner Brothers gets involved, yeah. and uh, a company called Tandem Productions. And Tandem Productions are these uh, essentially two dudes that are like TV actors turned producers, okay. and they do a lot of TV stuff. And this was sort of their chance to get into the world of movies. movies. Yeah, if it does well, then they can profit. Um, that obviously became uh, a problem when the movie starts going a little over budget. A little? Just, you know, relatively speaking, it's not too much. <laughs> I, you know, uh, in this interview, in the back of the book, I did read the Ridley Scott interview. He points out that he went over budget on Alien by half a million dollars. Okay. And that got him... Uh, that one movie and that one over budget, over budget expense got him a label of excessive. Okay. Half a million dollars. Half a million. And on like a 15, 10, 15 million dollar budget. And uh, he points out now, these days, people regularly go $20 million over budget and then they just move on to the next movie. They just get the next job. $20 million. Like people go over budget all the time now. It's That's like a whole movie it's, over budget. It's ridiculous. So yeah, it is. The entire movie is going to be funded with that 20 million. Like, no, we, uh, we fucked up our sets. We need to reshoot stuff. So really, Scott only goes over on this one maybe by about $4 million. But still, it's a lot of money for these small companies at this time. Yeah. The money they're spending is a decent amount of money. So what ha- happened at one point? Uh, Tandem Productions—they have the completion bond, right? They're the insurance company, and uh, they like cash in. They're like Ridley Scott, Michael Dealey, you are fired off of this picture. Now we expect you to see you at work tomorrow morning. <laughs> and Scott and Dealey was like, 
whatever, guys. <laughs> Fine. Like, they pulled uh, the, the, the triggers yeah. to make sure that they were in charge of everything, which included having Final Cut. And uh, Scott and Delia were just like, fine, whatever. We just want to. We believe in this movie. We just want to make this movie. So uh, that comes into play later. So imagine the Scott and Delia the whole time they're working this movie. They're fired from, but they're still. They never stop working on it. The cast, right, comes together. Uh, it's really funny. Rutger Hauer got cast because uh, Scott saw him. He saw him in his Dutch movies mm-hmm. and he was like, this guy, I want to, this, this guy's crazy. This <laughs> guy is Roy Batty. I want him. And he offered him the job. Roy Batty, like they met and they got along and uh, uh, Rutger Hauer got along. Mm-hmm. To this day, Rutger Hauer says Blade Runner is his favorite movie that he's worked on by far. It's like the masterpiece of a film. It's one he's most proud mm-hmm. of working on. Harrison Ford, uh, when they did one of the re-releases in the 2000s, cleaned a lot of stuff up, closer to the director's cut, he was quoted as saying, oh yeah, it looks great, it's visually amazing, but there's still nothing there. <laughs> like, he's not the biggest fan yeah. of, of the movie. Um, you know the <clears throat> Nighthawks painting? It's the uh, the one, it's a diner, it's like a 50s diner, it's mm-hmm. nighttime, there's like three people sitting at the diner, and it's from outside. Yeah. It's a very famous painting. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott named that and uh, Heavy Metal Magazine as like his two biggest influences for the tone and atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, Next to two. <laughs> what is it? How do you say Metal Herlant? How, how do you say H-U-R-L-A-N-T? Uh, her, metal Herlant? Metal, heavy Metal Magazine. Um, Mobius, speaking of Jodorowsky's yeah. Dune, working for Heavy Metal. Uh, one of the uh, inspirations of it and he cited Mobius specifically. He's like, I love Mobius. I love his work. That's a lot of what we're bringing to this. And then he goes to, to Mobius. like, can he, can he work with us? And Mobius is like, I like what you're doing, and I'm interested, but I'm working on this other thing, this animated movie right now. Can't work with you. Sorry. Ends up being one of Mobius's biggest, like, publicly announced regrets. He's always he's regretted that decision to the day he died, mm. not, not being able to say he worked on Blade Runner. Oh, well. Um who did work on Blade Runner, was a futurist named Sid Mead. If you Google image search Sid Mead, not even, don't even worry about like adding anything else, just Sid Mead. People know they they don't want to see his ugly face. Mm -hmm. You want to see his work. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yes, this man has like, shaped the the look of science fiction for for decades you yeah. know and and will continue to do so you can there's stuff that he's did that's obviously from the 60s and 70s and like oh my oh, yeah. this this looks incredible i would love this you know now this will look you know he's got a great great sensibility so uh he's brought on board he does does a lot of the the doesn't that stuff's passed off to the uh the production teams to get made for example the spinners right the mm-hmm. uh the uh the cars he says, because he's a futurist and an engineer and all that, he says that the cars, technically, if you make them the way that he designs them, that they would work, that they're aerodyne uh, cars, meaning that they work with uh, air lift, yeah. uh, upward lift. Um, one car, this is for our West Coast listeners, if you're in Seattle, you can go to the Science Fiction Museum and Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. run by, it's founded by the the guy who founded Microsoft, not Bill Gates. Uh, the other guy. The other guy. Okay. He started to open a sci-fi museum, Drew. Of course he did. And uh, there's this great section in this future noir book about the paths that some of these spinner cars took because they made about 14 different vehicles, working vehicles, in different, you know, working mm-hmm. order uh, for the movie, including like two versions of the cop car, a version of this, a version of that. All but four of the cars were destroyed almost immediately after the movie because they were like, we don't want these going into some sort of back lot and then ending up in other productions. Yeah. You know, they're very unique. We would rather destroy them than see them be bastardized, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But that is what happened to some of the ones that existed. So in the background of Back to the Future Part 2, there is a Blade Runner spinner car that's been like painted up and redressed. And you can see it back there in the 2015 shots. Uh, I'm sure they knew what they had to. Yeah. Like, oh, look at this thing. It's a spinner. Let's doctor it up and throw it back there. Um, some films are hands of private collectors. So, like, they disappeared for a while mm-hmm. and then reappeared when these people needed money or they just wanted to sell them. So, by the time the, the Microsoft dude got it, this, it was uh, the police one. It was all fucked up. So, they had to, like, reassemble parts of it. And But he put a lot of money into fixing it. And now it's hanging over a door, I think, in, in some, front of a specific exhibit. Mm. So, people can go to that museum and, and uh, if they want... Email us, cinemacrespedis at gmail.com. We'll send you a sticker. You can slap it off. <laughs> slap a sticker right on that sucker. Uh, all right. Printable photography starts 
March 1981 goes four whole months, mostly shot on a Warner Brothers backlot because okay. uh, he was like, I need to be able to control several blocks at a time. Can't do that uh, in the cities in New York because it's too expensive. Can't control the elements. Yeah. Plus, uh, the the sky and all that. It's got to be so. That's why it's always raining and it's always dark. dark. Like we can't. We have to hide that this no. is all on a a backlot. But they also shot at the Bradbury Building in downtown LA. Uh, like the outside of it was used as Deckard's apartment building, mm-hmm. and then they just recreated the design for the inside. For the inside, uh, they also shot at the. Uh, Ennis Brown House and the Second Street Tunnel in L.A. Uh, book takes place in San Francisco. Story, the screenplay for a long time was set in New York. They, they almost shot in New York for a while. And then Ridley Scott says if they were, if he was going to make the movie now, he would almost consider London because mm-hmm. it's, it's being built up in a way that he yeah. always imagined. Uh, but then they end up doing uh, L.A. just for logistical reasons, right? The opening shot of... Um, Blade Runner, where it's like the, the they call it the Inferno. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was like a huge um, Trumbull, Douglas Trumbull built, uh, uh, oh, his company built a model that they had to like under lights and uh, put all the shit on it and have a huge matte painting back behind it. And then they had these, um, like, I don't know, white placards, I guess. I was trying to, it's weird trying to describe, well, I, reading how they describe it, but it's like white sheets, I guess, that they then superimposed actual flames like they shot flames and then they would superimpose the flames onto the crazy process <laughs> and then you go back and look at it like man that looks really yeah i mean we saw pieces of those models we saw the tyrell model oh. that's not just a piece actually that's the whole that was the whole tyrell model just that front section <laughs> yeah but, but we saw the back of it too so but we could so see you around. saw all the little lights and the wires it's wild all that uh the details that go into that thing, and then the the prominence it gets in the in the movie, it's pretty wild. Uh, the T-shirt wars went down during the production of this movie. Here's a a, a, quick, a quick anecdote to talk about how things were not so hot on the on the set. The really Scott gave an interview to, and this is you know pre-internet, so he, he's not thinking it's not like yeah. oh this will pop up on Twitter the next day. But he gave an interview to some magazine, a British magazine, I think, and he was talking about the difference between working with a UK crew and an American crew. This being his first American crew, and he's like, over in the UK, if I say I need this and I need that, all I get is yes, governor, and then it gets done. In America, he gets this and that, he gets a lot of pushback, or whatever. So he's complaining, no. right? Uh, he shows up. Well, first that interview gets circulated on the set. Crew's like, what the mm-hmm. fuck, this guy? We're standing here in this fake rain. Uh, he shows up. We we spend all day lighting and fixing the set. He shows up and announces, "I want this change, that change, flip these columns, do this, do that." And then they're like, "And then, and then, and then it comes back twelve hours later when it's all done." Motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they go out and get a bunch of T-shirts made that all say, um, "Yes, Governor, my ass," in like big letters. Yeah. Uh, and then really, Scott sees the shirts, right? And also the uh, one of the producers and uh, or someone else, like a few people, see the shirts. Like, mm-hmm. okay, they immediately go out. Uh, they find a nearby print shop, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they have shirts made up that says "Xenophobia sucks." And then they're walking <laughs> around with their shirts that say "Xenophobia sucks" while they're walking around with the escovin on my ass shirts. So that's how they're venting their frustrations through t-shirt battles. Weird. Apparently, uh, this is a thing that I guess still sort of happens. What was man? There was t-shirt a, wars. T-shirt wars or messaging through clothing. There was another one where there were someone was doing a shoot or a shoot was happening. Where they were wearing shirts that were like, at least I'm not on Terminator Salvation or something like that. Where it's like the wow. next shoot over was yeah. so bad. They had to remind themselves, like, man, at least we're not over there. You know, this sucks, but that's that. Interesting. Um, him and Ford did not get along at all infamously because uh, styles clash. Culture crash, like they would say in A Serious Man. Harrison Ford, coming off of working with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, gets a lot of attention on his sets. He likes talking about, like, let's do this, let's do that. By all accounts, true Chicago. And looking at him and the movies he's made, I've never really gotten this feeling from him. I guess because he's a private dude, so I don't hear him talk much. By all accounts, he's an extremely intelligent, very thoughtful, very creative, very collaborative person. Mm -hmm. He's like, really, really enjoys uh, the art of it. And uh, he shows up to Blade Runner, it's like, I'm ready to flesh out the role of Deckard. And really, Scott's like, off on the other side of the set, like making sure that everything looks right. I need more water, more smoke. I need this, I need that. And he's like, okay, I want to talk about it. He's got the script. He's like, okay, I want to talk about it. What's my motivation here? He's like, I don't know. Read you, the script. Read do the your script. thing. You Let's go. Yeah. So really, Scott's like, you're the actor. You figure it out. And Ford's like, I need direct. You're the director. Direct me. So they weren't giving each other necessarily what they wanted. Mm. 
So, uh, but then really Scott, he's like, he admits, he calls it in an interview. He calls it like, you know, part my failure was, uh, if I failed at anything, it was not being as available as I could have to him. But at the same time, he always throws that it's a, but the yeah. caveat, he's like, at the same time, I'm the director. I'm, he even said that he said to Harrison Ford once, like, what about me? Yeah, like you need direction, but so do these people, and I need to do this, and I need to do that. I need to. I have all these things going on at the same time. Yeah. How about someone cut me some slack for once? You know, so tensions were very, very high, mm. yeah. very high on the lots side. of cocaine. Oh my god, that were they? interesting. I wonder. <laughs> I had some Ford, uh, notorious uh, pothead, all the way back yeah. to the all the way back to the seventies. I heard a, this is a secondhand podcast story. I heard this on the Proopcast. On the, uh, Greg Proops told a story about how he was, um, I think it was on his podcast, told a story about going to Star Wars, uh, not going to Star Wars, going to England to film for Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace. And since it was all in Pinewood and all that, it was a lot of the same Union people that worked on Return of the Jedi in 84. Mm-hmm. And the driver he had was the same fucking driver for Harrison Ford. And he right. said... Harrison Ford always uh, on the car ride to uh, set would get high in the back seat, and then one day he goes to pick him up. Harrison Ford comes running out of the bungalow or whatever, and he just has a, a pot, uh, a cooking pot with the mm-hmm. lid on it, and he gets in the car. And apparently, what had happened was he didn't have any sort of uh, smoking uh, anything, oh. uh, papers or anything. So he fucking threw a bunch of weed, got it hot. It's on fire. He closed it. He, maybe he can inhale the smoke somehow. He, he would lift the lid and in the back seat. <laughs> And, and, yeah, and uh, get all that. Yeah, so that's Harrison Ford. That's hilarious. You think you're a pothead. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> never hopped out of a guy. Talk about a pothead. Yeah, you know, yeah. Ba-doom. Ba-doom. Over there, take that. Where's my drummer? Oh, he's on break. Damn it. Worst time. Worst timing. Of course he's taking a pee break now. Um. Yeah, so man, it wasn't... It wasn't the greatest. It wasn't the greatest. And then um, the whole thing with Tandem Productions, right? So like the last days of shooting... The uh, they're trying to get the final shots of the final final shots are on a twenty foot set moving set that they built inside the back lot of the roof mm-hmm. for the final uh, scene between Harrison Ford and Roger Howard, and uh, part of it was shot outside, part of it was shot inside. The final shots of Rutger Howard were outside, and uh, the sun. The, the, the day is breaking behind them. The sky is turning blue. And then, like, Tandem Productions are standing there like, you, this is it. This is literally, you're out of film. You're out of this. You're out of that. We're not paying anyone another dollar. Everyone's going home. This is your last shot. And he was like, fuck. Um, they needed a shot of the dove. The stupid dove that yeah. Rutger Hauer. Rut, that was Rutger Hauer's idea. The dove. The dove He's thing. like, I want the dove. Can yeah. I bring in a dove? And they're like, and Really, Scott was like, fuck, someone go out and get some pigeons. I mean, it, it's one of the most iconic shots Very beautiful. of the movie. That and the tears in the rain. Yeah. He, he came up with that whole monologue. Oh, on the spot. He, he wrote it like that day. That before or something, yeah. Yeah, and then he had uh, Ridley Scott come out to his trailer. It was like, I'm going to say all this. And he's like, you do that, it's beautiful. And uh, But they didn't tell uh, David Peoples, who's sitting there on set. And then he's like, when Ridley Scott, yeah, he's like, what the fuck? When, uh, when Rutger Howard says it, <laughs> he says the lines. And then... In the, in the movie, he says the lines and he looks up. Looks like he's looking at Harrison yeah. Ford. He looks up and he smiles. He's actually looking at David Peoples. And he's like... Hi, hi, by, by the way. By the way, mm-hmm. the, your screenplay is good, but this is better. This is better. And um, they were like, you got it. This is... This is it. We're shutting down production. It's over. There's no more money. You've gone over the money. We're out of the monies. We need to start putting this together, start marketing. We need to get the buzz out there. So since the word is out now, yeah, okay, we got... From the director of Alien, the star of Raiders of the Lost Star, Star Wars, and Star Wars, and Empire Strikes Back, and um, producer of the Deer Hunter, like a lot, a lot of buzz uh, behind this thing. People are super, super excited. The the marketing, the 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 journals or the, the, the articles with the pictures and stuff. People are like even showing up to uh, the sneak peeks with like in, dressed as like what they're seeing, ready yeah. for like high action adventure and all this stuff. Uh, and then they're greeted with Blade Runner, yeah. which, is very, <laughs> which is not very dour <laughs> film noir. Ray Chandler, slow pace. Yes, uh, he uh, 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 slow burn. The, the lead character is a drunk who only kills women. No. The first one he kills, he shoots in the back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those are the only people that he kills. In the movie yeah. uh, are they? All? One of them does give him a good karate chop to the throat first, but still, um, actually, but they're not people. Chris. Actually, no, two out of three of them almost kill him. They're uh, not people, or are they? Are they? Or is he? <gasps> okay, so. 
that that's the unicorn stuff. <laughs> All right, we'll talk about the unicorn stuff as we talk about the. I swear, like, people can't decide either the six or seven different versions of Blade Runner. Okay. Okay. So, how did that happen? How does this kind of nonsense transpire? Very easily. First, the very first step is making sure you don't have Final Cut. Really, Scott, when you get fired from your own movie, you don't have re- you don't have Final Cut. So he keeps making the movie, but uh, Tandem Productions, Bud Yorkin, and this other guy, Jeremy Johnny Parencio. I don't know his name. I didn't write it down. They're the two that are just like we just want to get our money back and get out of here. Mm-hmm go back to making the TV shows and um, they had two sneak peeks Denver Dallas the infamous Denver Dallas sneak peeks in March 1982 and they were pretty much disastrous Mm. Uh, a lot of the cute comment cards that came back from these audiences were like um, confusing plot uh, very dark uh, like we didn't such you didn't like it a lot of people did like it said it was visually beautiful a lot of people gave mixed reviews saying visually it was stunning but plot-wise, it was confusing. Confusion seemed to be a pretty big mm-hmm. factor at this point, which made everyone freak out. They're like, well, God I mean, damn it's, it. It's dealing with some pretty deep thinking. So, I mean, yes. get it. Deep and dark and a lot of visual yeah. information that comes without explanation. You know, you're being trusted as an audience to, to understand what's going mm-hmm. on, right? Um, the unicorn people are like what's up with this unicorn um, like why is he why is he playing that piano and all of a sudden there's a unicorn and he's just back to playing the piano we don't get it when the doors close at the end the elevator doors it just says the end what happens why why is it gotta be so what happens you know so they all freak out mm-hmm. really Scott by this point even he's down and he's like oh man I mean I, I thought I think I think it's good but I don't know so um, now there's two things about the what they do to try to fix it. First is a happy ending, mm-hmm. in which it's shown after the elevator's door elevator doors close. Deckard and Rachel uh, are in the car driving away, and a voiceover kicks in where he's like, "Oh, she was built with a blah 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 with yada a, yada." Yeah, she's not going to die because she's yeah. having an unknown lifespan, and things are going to be fine, and we're going to go live in the woods and and have babies. You know, maybe, maybe, and then there's shots of um. Big vista shots of mountains and greens. It's the first time you see really see trees in the movie, mm-hmm. and it's it's all um, unused helicopter shots from The Shining. Okay, interesting. Not the only connection to The Shining this movie has. Uh, really, Scott, he's like, I need I need these shots, but I don't feel like going for a week scouting for fucking mountains. So yeah. he just contacted Stanley Kubrick, his first time ever contacting him, mm-hmm. and he ex- called him on the phone. Said, hey, "Explain, it's me, really, Scott." Stanley Cooper's like, "I am where for you are," and, and he's like, this, "Awesome, yeah. it's like, <laughs> that's good. That, good. that makes that's gonna make this a little easier." Um, I need mountain shots. I'm hoping you had some leftover footage from The Shining. Cooper was like, "I got you, bro. I'm gonna send some. I'm gonna send something over. Just don't use anything that's already been used in the movie." Mm-hmm. Like, thanks, bro. Two hours later, 900 feet of film shows up at Ridley Scott's office and then they have to comb through it from an insane amount of footage but they got their footage that way so they attacked on that ending and then to help explain things throughout the movie voiceover a narration Harrison Ford's character being like I was looking for a replicant and I found one and it was a dame and look at me so there was always a version of a narration even in that original Dallas Denver peak narration pops up at the very end when Roy Batty is dying on the roof mm-hmm. then he kicks in he's like I sat there and watched him die for six hours or something like that and that was the only time there was narration but throughout the writing of the script all the different versions there were versions with different levels of voiceover throughout the whole thing they were going for a you know very hard boiled uh, uh, private eye type thing fil- fil- yeah. uh, Marlowe type of thing right at one point, they were writing the screenplay for uh, with Robert Mitchum in mind. That was right around when he did The Big Sleep. Yeah. And he's like in his mid-50s, so that would have been weird. Yeah. But uh, a very prototypical barrel-chested drunk dude, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they tack on the narration. They And then the narration has its own thing where they wrote multiple versions, but then the version they ended up using was uh, written by some other dude who's not even credited, and then Harrison Ford was like, oh, this all sucks. He never liked any of the voiceover stuff to begin with. So it's he denies it, but it sounds terrible. It sounds like he's tanking it, that, yeah. that like he's doing kind a of. purposeful job. But uh, he denies it. He's, no, it's just, it's just bad, which is could be it. That's fine. big reason why the voiceover is bad, objectively speaking, is because the voiceover is explaining what's happening. 
on screen. So he's like, he picks up a paper. He's like, I grabbed today's paper. It's like, yeah, I can see that. Thank you, guys. Now you went from treating your audience with respect to treating them like an idiot. Children. Yes. No. So uh, that's a terrible, terrible voiceover. But they tacked it on to the San Diego one. Also, this may have colored some of the audience reaction cards, but Harrison Ford made an appearance before a screen. He was like, hey, guys, hope you like my new movie. Mm. Uh, so that may have colored the more positive reaction to the San Diego sneak, which has all these changes. That's the second version. So you got the original work print, and then you got San Diego. San Diego is what ends up being released in theaters. Okay. This is where it's like what's considered... Yeah, two, three, version four. It's pretty much there's a little trims here and there. Some things change, but for the most part, what they aired in San Diego was what they put out in theaters, June twenty fifth, nineteen eighty two. Uh, the reason why June twenty fifth was because Alan Ladd, one of the producers of the Ladd Company through Warner Brothers, his last two movies he put out on June twenty fifth. June twenty fifth, nineteen seventy seven was uh, Star Wars, mm. and June twenty fifth, nineteen seventy nine was Alien. Mm. So he was like, you know what? Hey, I'm going to take... Lucky day. Yeah, let's do it. Lucky day. No, lucky number. Let's do this. Let's roll that dice one more time. And uh, lightning did not strike three times because Blade Runner did not do that well. It had a decent opening weekend. $6 million opening weekend on 1,200 screens, which for that time, that's like every available yeah. theater in the country. Uh, $6 million's okay, but it didn't have any legs. It had tepid word of mouth and mixed reviews at best. Yeah. At best mixed reviews um also movies that came out summer of 82 legendary summer should get its own chris so episode the thing mm. also bombed mm-hmm. star trek 2 the wrath of khan did great mm-hmm. conan the barbarian pretty good and uh the movie that they like to point the finger at is like the biggest reason why no one wanted to get into the darky the murky world of la 2019 the reason why they didn't want to get into that world is because everyone was still on that sugar rush from E.T., the extraterrestrial, no, and his oh, adventures on Earth. That yeah. thing, they, they literally, one of the producers, I think it was Alan Ladd, was like, he saw E.T. coming, and he was like, people are going to be tired of it by the time our movie comes out. Yeah. Uh, here we are, four, 40 years, 35 years later, E.T. arrived, still kicking over at Universal yeah. somehow. Still kicking. I ain't been on Everybody no, loves E.T. I ain't never been on Old Blade Runner ride. No. People love that E.T., yeah. man. Everybody. Unanimously. Goddamn Neil Diamond wrote a song. No. Turn on your heart. <laughs> um, now, that's a U.S. theater release, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an international theater release that is more violent. Mm. The three scenes of violence that they put back in were, uh, well, it's really violent stuff that they just extended. Like, for example, one thing, uh, Pris, uh, Daryl Hannah's character, mm-hmm. she gets, it's her first role. She gets shot twice in the U.S. theatrical version, and this one she gets shot three times. And her thrashing yeah. on the floor is a little longer, you know, but whatever. Um, Tyrell, played by, what's this guy's name? Turkle. Joe Turkle. Played Eldon Tyrell, the the guy who's the uh, mm-hmm. the Tyrell Corporation, he um, was the bartender in The Shining. Oh, and that's how really Scott saw him. It was like oh, that guy. I want that guy for Tyrell. And Joe Turtle was like, looked around the room. Me, me. <laughs> and pointed to himself very theatrically, and was like, "Yes, you, you are my." So that's how he got that. Um, when it, when Batty kills him with, with the the fingers in the eyeballs, that's much longer. More yeah. there's more okay. shots of blood, and even shots of him taking his thumbs out Ooh. were were reinserted back in. And then the shot where Batty he sticks a nail through his hand to like kind of because he's cramping up, yeah. so somehow stick a nail through his hand like kind of recharges him for a second. Uh, and also his holes, you know, stick him out of Jesus. Yeah, um, no. A shot of the nail coming out of the back of his hand, so it's like a little yeah. longer, a little more graphic. Uh, is that all things? And then the like the fight that he has with Pris is extended a little bit, and I think the fight he has with Joanna Cassidy is extended a little bit. Oh man, that's Sorry. our that's our forty five minute warning right here. We go. Um, CBS Television got the TV broadcast rights, so they put out a cut down version. Mm-hmm. All right, um, edited down. Obviously, the opening text that that crawls up is read by a narrator, not Harrison Ford. <laughs> Very weird. And then also the text is different. It essentially says the same thing, but it's different and it's shorter. No. I don't know if that counts as a version or not. This does count as a version. The 1992 director's cut. Now, no. this has its own story. This is almost its own episode, Drew. Yeah, 1992 seriously. director's cut. So here we go. <laughs> what had happened was, uh, there's this guy. His name is Michael. I made sure to note it because it's important. Give him credit. Michael Eric. Michael Eric is a film preservationist and conservationist and all that stuff. He uh, carved out his own career as 
going through vaults and finding places where films are stored to uncover like gems, the things that need to be preserved yeah. and kept, right? And he's working on another movie, Gypsy. He's looking for uh, negatives of that. So he's going through all these old Burbank studios. And like uh, he described it as um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, looking for the Ark of the Covenant, going through all these boxes. And he finds these cans, these big old cans. And uh, and this lady's like, they're over there. No, I'm kidding. That's a titty joke. <laughs> and he finds these big old uh, canisters. And they're labeled Blade Runner. Um, UK. No, did it say UK? They make it. It's 70 millimeter. And he was like, ooh. Are these? Could they be? And he pulled them out and he checked the film to verify. And yes, it was for sure Blade Runner. So he had a seventy millimeter, like a large print, uh, negative of of this movie, which had by this point, it's a coming up on a ten year anniversary. It you know people are writing articles about it, mm-hmm. so it was building its cult following despite the happy ending and the the voiceover and all the, the all that stuff, and the uh, the unicorn mm-hmm. cut out unicorn. <laughs> excise no unicorn mm-hmm. um so they get this print and uh he's like oh this is pretty cool a theater finds out about it finds out about the print and they're like we would like to rent this for uh, uh a film festival a film screening and they go to warner brothers like this print exists we'd like to rent it we'd like to write so yeah sure go ahead you can you can do a screening so they thread it up no one watches it no one does nothing they're just like we just have it let's just thread this thing and then project it in front of this audience of unsuspecting people yeah. And Drew, what they got shown was that Dallas Denver work print. Mm-hmm. The, original the original fucking The one that print. nobody understood. The one that no one liked. Yeah. The one that didn't have voiceover except for the very end. Yep. That does have a befuddling unicorn in the middle. No. And then just ends with the elevator doors closing. Shutting. Yeah. And that, that blew those... What is this? It blew their fucking minds. And... um. And that's how it grew life of its own. Uh, oh. Warner Brothers finds out about this. Like, oh my God, we need to... Like, this, this screening was a success. People loved this original version of Blade Runner. Let's put this out as the director's cut. And they very hastily made dupes of the 70 millimeter that was a work print. Yeah. So the, it didn't even have the, the final scene. It was a temp track. Didn't even have any Vangelis music mm-hmm. on it. It was... Uh, some whatever they were using as the track. I didn't write down what the music was. Um, really, Scott finds out about this and he's like, "Whoa!" And they they want to call it the director's cut, and he's like, "No, this is not my director's cut. This is a work print. It's still a work in progress. You can't show this version of this movie." And really, Scott also a person famously um, not into revisiting yeah. stuff. He's like, "It's done. It's over. I moved on." By this point, he has made several other films. By the time this is all going down, he's balls deep in Dumb and Louise. Mm-hmm. Uh, another hugely influential movie. One of the ones, one of the few movies he's made that's like non-genre. It's like just a movie about people. No. That's actually like really good. Mm-hmm. Everything else, like, give me a spaceship, give me an alien <laughs> monster, give me something. It's gotta be something. Give me, make it old timey, you know, Gladiator times. Give me something. Um, is it a boat movie? Yeah, give me a boat movie, really. Um, so he strikes a deal with them to uh, put some money together to uh, do an actual restoration. That happened because while they agreed to pull most of their screenings, because they had like a small run planned, they kept a couple theaters. One in San Francisco, one in L.A., and those were killing it. People were lined up around the block to see this uh, new version of Blade Runner. And um, so that convinced them to pony up the money needed to do this very expensive and exhaustive restoration, which involved them finding all these negatives and restoring things and trying to fix up the unicorn, the original unicorn sequence that they, they had was... Uh, too fucked up like it, it looked terrible mm-hmm. and they couldn't uh, they had to use only a portion of it it was bad 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 um, but they did it 1992 10 year anniversary the director's cut comes out it's that Dallas Denver sneak before all the, all that extra stuff comes out um, that's the version then that they fixed up and then showed to Harrison Ford he was like yeah you know it's fine <laughs> it's fine I guess still no substance now the final version is a 2007 final cut and that was came out on the 25 year anniversary but it really started coming together like five years before that um not tied to any real anniversary actually maybe they were trying to tie it to the 20 year mm-hmm. anniversary and this guy who at this time was known for putting together amazing dvd packages that was his deal yeah. he's a dvd producer i wonder what he's doing now because it's yeah. not that nope uh, but he was a DVD producer. He put together amazing box sets. For example, the the five disc Kingdom of Heaven director's cut. Yeah, thing, right. He was behind all that. Stuff. Okay, 
And so he was working with Roy Scott already for years. So when this opportunity came up, Roy Scott called him up and was like, hey, can we do some sort of uh, like Thank final you. restoration of all this stuff? He was like, let's see what we can do. Did a, like a year's worth of work on it. And then all these legal issues came up about the, the rights. What had happened was Tandem, mm-hmm. those people, one guy was like, no. The other guy. <laughs> no Blade Runner stuff. was like, cool. The other guy was like, uh, I don't feel too well. <laughs> Let me deal with this health stuff for a bit. So that put all the brakes on everything. Yeah. But Yorkin, who was the guy who was like, eh, I'm not feeling too well, dies. His wife, Cynthia Yorkin, uh, convinces the other dude, stop being an ass. Let's put together, uh, let's let this happen. Also the one who really muscled Blade Runner 2049 through. Ooh, nice. Yeah, she was like, I, Good job, lady. Yeah, she Thank was like, you. I, I want this to happen. And she didn't do it for like a money grab reason. She was like, I just, I love Blade Runner and I want this to happen. So. Cynthia Sykes Shoster. Cynthia Sykes Yorkin, I think is her full name. And uh, 25 year anniversary, full restoration. They cleaned everything up. They really, Scott had 100% control. This is the only version of the movie that he had 100% final control of. Because even in the 1992 director's cut, he was doing Dumb and Louise. He couldn't get everything that he needed. So it wasn't what he did with this one. He even like brightened up the movie's. Famously dark. Yeah. He even brightened some scenes because, like, you know what? I want to see some of the details. Let's yeah. let's fix. That's the only way. He, like, he really changed things in that way. He, he actually made things a little brighter. Um, he brought in Ben Ford, Harrison Ford's son, to to shoot his mouth for mm-hmm. one scene, so okay. he could they could re because the dialogue changed so often that sometimes the lips were just off. So they brought in his son to record him because he was like right around like thirty years old, right mm-hmm. around the same age as Harrison Ford was at that time. To film him and uh, Joanna Cassidy, who played Zora, the first replicant that gets shot by Harrison Ford during a big chase sequence mm-hmm. through the, the city streets. She, uh, there was one shot of her character crashing through the glass, and it's in slow motion, and it's clearly in the original version of the movie, not her. Yeah, it's a stunt, maybe man with a wig. Very obviously, it's a very terrible shot. Everyone's mortified by it. She suggested all the way back then in the 80s, oh, we should reshoot. We got to find a way to reshoot this and redo this. Now that the opportunity came up, do it in 2007. 25 years later, Joanna Cassie shows up on set wearing the same, exact same plastic raincoat. They throw a wig on her, and she's like, boom. <laughs> she looks incredible. Uh, she did all her movements like exactly the same as before. Like, they... they they filmed her doing the exact same thing and mapped her and put it all together and it's crazy wild crazy yeah. wild stuff all that's available on like extra features and this, so this guy who put together a DVD producer thing there's a on the DVD set and it's available on YouTube it's about 50 minutes long and it's called very imaginatively it's called deleted and alternate scenes mm-hmm. that's the name of the video and it's exactly what it is very descriptive but the whole thing is um, played in sequential order in in movie order and there is unused um Harrison Ford uh narration that is then strung throughout the whole thing and it's like an alternate version of the movie it's like it's like Ron Burgundy it's like uh, a 50 minute version it's like a 50 minute version it's like that uh 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 what's that that Ron Burgundy Anchorman movie that the legend of you know not Anchorman 2 yeah. but they did like a, with all the outtakes they made a whole other movie this guy made a whole other Blade Runner movie yeah. so that's on the that's on the YouTube's for people to watch and uh, Vangelis, the soundtrack, just like the movie, had its own crazy issues where due to rights reasons and legal reasons, an official version of the soundtrack didn't come out until 1992. No, 1994. Two years after the 10-year anniversary. Yeah. And even then, it wasn't every... It wasn't everything. It wasn't everything. So apparently there's something called... where This is crazy. Um... He even put out some of the Blade Runner music on his own album, Vangelis Colon Themes, because it's like, I can at least do yeah. this. Uh, a set of three CDs of Blade Runner-related Vangelis music was released in 2007 titled Blade Runner Trilogy. The first disc t- contains the same tracks as the 1994 official soundtrack release. The second disc features unrelated, unreleased music, excuse me, previously unreleased music from the movie. And the third disc is all newly composed music from Van Gallus inspired by Blade Runner. So he even went back and did more stuff. Apparently Van Gallus is a dream to work with. Very pro- very productive, very open to notes and uh, 
Uh, pretty pretty crazy wild stuff. And then, of course, like I said earlier, with the Blade Runner 2049, uh, all reports on that set where everything just went smoothly. Yep. Smooth, smooth. Which is why the movie was pretty great. Pretty great. And then uh, didn't make that much money. It could have made more. It could have made more. But I think everyone's proud of it. You gotta be. I hope so. I mean, it's a worthy successor. I think it's the reason why Villanueva is able to get uh, Dune well, yeah, off be- the ground the way he well, is. Well, also because they he he's proven that he can create worlds. Yes, basically huge worlds. Yeah, and that- lots of information, big information. Yeah, yeah, man, it's gonna, so, be, it's gonna be a wild, wild movie. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping so. I the, mean, even though I was doing the fucking casting news, just gets more bonkers. It seems every day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty great. Yes, it's pretty fantastic. So uh, there is now. This is the third edition of Future Noir. Uh, there is like updates, and there's additional Future Noir stuff that's online that he didn't even include in the book. Okay. And I think there's even I haven't checked it, but I bet you there's on the electronic edition probably an update on twenty forty nine. It's critical reception and even I'm interested in even thinking and hearing what Paul Salmon thinks. He probably likes it. Mm-hmm. He seems like a pretty affable, likable fellow when it comes to this kind of stuff. So it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend people read it, check it out. And then you read all this, you think you got it all. No. No nah, man, there's like so much more. There's like three or four documentaries that is name checked in here. Michael Dealey, who pr- the producer, wrote his own book and uh, this guy Paul Salmon is like the only complaint. No, that no, that's a Rutger Howard book. He says the uh, the Michael Dealey book, the Blade Runner section is essential reading. So now I gotta fucking get that mm-hmm. book. And then the Rutger Howard uh, put out a book about a lot of his roles, and his 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 only complaint about that one was that the Blade Runner section is way too short because mm. it was great. No. So yeah, there's plenty plenty of stuff out there. So much information, and now we got this. Braid Runner. We help, we're helping condense it. The old Braid Runner. You Braid Runner. <laughs> you Braid Runner. Edward James almost. I did want to talk about some of the actors real quick. Let's finish up with talking about some of the actors. Um, obviously, Harrison Ford was the big name that got them, got everything going, right? Rutger Hauer, a huge international name. We were talking about how he got signed on. Sean Young, it's like her first role. Cast because she was just so good looking. She was like, this is like, if you're if a man, obviously the chauvinistic world, if a man was going to build these robots, build the robots like her. someone's going to look like we're trying yeah. to make a, an ideal woman. Edward James almost coming off of huge Broadway uh, stage success. And uh, he's the one who came up with the city speak. When he you can't understand him, he's like mumbling no. crazy, like Hungarian, Spanish, Filipino yeah, shit. Yeah, I was about to say, just mixing languages. Just mixing languages. Uh Salmon got together with some different linguists. This linguist, linguist, he got together with different polyglots, and he was like, "Help me translate some of this dialogue." So he has his um, his translations of those scenes in his book, as well as the translation of the scene between um, Batty, the uh, the big replicant uh, played by uh, Brian James, Leon Kowalski, mm-hmm. uh, them with James Hong. Uh, Chu, the eye, the no. eyeball guy, because all of his stuff is in Chinese, so he no. helps him translate all the Chinese stuff. Um, I already mentioned Joe Turkle's in The Shining. William Sanderson, uh, he's the one who played the the toy maker who had the aging disease. Yeah. And then uh, my favorite, every time I see him, I think E.B. Farnham in the uh, uh, Deadwood. Oh yeah, and because um, he's so he's so yeah. good at that show, man, oh, he's he so is. great, and he's almost always plays that kind of character, like he's a, a slimy, evil, mean. And in this one, he actually gets a, it's his only real chance to play like a character with humanity in it and, and sadness and, and vulnerability. And he really was appreciative of getting that opportunity to do that. Dora Hannah, her first role. M- Emmett Walsh, similar thing for Mehmet. him. Where Mehmet, it was his chance to do something that he really hadn't uh, done. He got to expand a little bit mm-hmm. more. Uh, so yeah, great, great cast. Oh, I don't have the guy's name. But there's one scene where Harrison Ford goes to a nightclub and he goes to talk to the nightclub owner who's sitting at a bar. <clears throat> they exchange a couple lines of dialogue. The nightclub owner essentially says, just have a drink and, you know, fucking chill relax, out. chill out. And then he turns off and walks away. They shot that in the first take. They shot that scene. Really, Scott yells, uh, uh, print, like, print that take. I want that take. And everyone just stopped. That was the first that was only the first take. We we do dozens of these. What's wrong with you? Are you okay? Is no, your... This is perfect. He's like, next. No. He's like, he said, no, I know perfection when I see it. Huh. And it's like, this guy was in and out, man. It was the smallest thing. Um, and then the guy who plays Holden, the first um, Blade Runner in the very beginning who gets shot mm-hmm. uh, through the table, 
he was reading with people before Harrison Ford was cast, and he was uh, just a stand-in for Deckard. They were always going to try to get some sort of star for for Deckard. Yeah. Uh, this guy's name was Morgan Morgan Paul, and uh, but he was so good as is sitting in in all those readings. They're like, we got to get you in this movie. So they uh, put him in that role for for Holden. Had a whole other scene shot with him where he gets shot in the beginning. He's not killed. There's a scene later where he's in the hospital. They even shot it. He's in the hospital. Deckard visits him. Edward James Olmos and M. Emmett Walsh are in the background spying on Deckard. A lot of that got cut out, too. Yeah. Uh, so Holden's role was a little bit bigger. That guy did, uh, really impressed them in the audition stuff. So Interesting. There's, there's a whole alternate Blade Runner mm-hmm. called, apparently, Deleted and Alternate Scene. It's mm-hmm. on YouTube. Um, so, Blade Runner. Blade Runner. In an hour. Blade Runner. Blade Runner in an hour. 500 pages of Blade Runner in an hour. That's not bad. Good uh, job. This also, this book has a 20-page uh, interview with Harrison Ford on Blade Runner, which is, it purports to be the longest, by far longest, interview with Harrison Ford on the subject. Oh, there we go. So, enticing. 500 pages of Blade Runner condensed to one hour for your listening pleasure. There you go. So, what's next? I, I'll read uh, War and Peace. I'll do that one next. Yeah, and then we'll just give us, you know... Crest, crest notes. Can, can, can we get a... 30-minute version of War and Peace? I can give you a 15-minute version. Okay. I can give you a 15-second version. War. Huh. Good God. What is it good for? Absolute nothing. Sing it again now. War. <laughs> good God. What is it good for? Absolute And, and that was War and Peace. Yeah. I mean. That was the war part, at least. And what's it good for? A PFT Media Production.